listening to Mike Lochran on the Management Perspectives podcast. Please follow me on LinkedIn and Twitter where I publish all of my podcasts and blogs. Hi, my name is Mike Lochran and this is the Management Perspectives podcast. In fact, this is going to be the last episode of the 2020 series. Um, a series that began with a, a look at digital transformation in, in 2020 at a time when little did we know that um, what, what was going to be a strange year ahead of us. Um, now that it kind of comes to a close, we're start, starting to see a light at the end of the tunnel. And it, and it seems like a good opportunity to look at what we've learned throughout the series. I, I think it goes without saying, you know, 2020 has been a year filled with tragedy, complexity and a great deal of uncertainty. My sympathy goes out to all those who've suffered through these months and, and also my thanks to all those who've helped us get through it. For manufacturing, it's been a year of overcoming many obstacles, um, supply chain, manufacturing, logistics, a challenge that we've met head on um, and with many businesses already well into their digital transformation or, or at least starting it. This year has conclusively demonstrated to me the importance of the flexibility and agility that digitization brings to overcome challenges either perceived or sprung upon us. Earlier this year, before most of me went into lockdown, I spoke with Rob Gosens, uh, the CEO of Technologies Added. I asked him to explain about the capabilities and benefits that a shared smart factory in the Netherlands could offer. Yeah, if, if, if we look a little bit back, I think in 2017, uh, well, we have a huge uh, facility here uh, in Emmen in the, in the Netherlands. And uh, when we look back uh, three years three years ago, uh, Philips decided to close the factory, which was in fact uh, a, a factory for making streetlights. And uh, the hundred thousands of streetlights were produced here uh, in all kinds of uh, variants. And uh, the market has changed, and that's why Philips uh, stopped the activities and and uh, did some remaining activities, uh, uh, shifted that to East European. Um, and then uh, there was a question: What's going to happen with the facility, the capability, and the people which are uh, which are here? And um, then there were investors. They thought, okay, well, why not starting a new uh, a new facility for uh, for streetlights, which was of course a little bit uh, difficult for uh, for Philips at the time because they just stopped it, and then bringing a new competition <laughs> that's already <laughs> that's already something and. Um, and they had uh, very good ideas about uh, using industry 4.0 to make a manufacturing which is able to produce different products for diff for different customers in all kinds of different uh, variances and and you can imagine that that uh, the company did that for streetlights but now we're doing that for scooters or uh, 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 water systems smart water systems or um, uh, all kinds of things and uh, uh, electrical bicycles for instance or uh, smart electronics uh, and to handle that within what factory then then there is a huge challenge and there helped the automation a lot but in fact that's uh, that's technology added we're producing things and what is uh, we are producing things and uh, what makes us different is that we are doing that in a what it, what we call a cooperation model and the, the the cooperation model is is best set by by our uh, well is it the mission statement i think so we say always it feels like your own factory but it works like a shared factory 
and and um, so we, we we truly believe that if customers are um, uh, well thinking about to produce their product in our facility um, they they should be convinced that it would be better to do it with us than to do it themselves or to do it somewhere else and um, and the best way to do it is to do it in cooperation because they're knowing so much of their product and we are starting to know about their product is that you're doing it together and uh, that means that our customers have their own entrance to our facility they can take their customers uh, with them to our facility they can do product presentations in our uh, facility they're helping setting up the production lines so we are building together the first prototypes uh, but what we share is all the knowledge which we have on the manufacturing side. So we advise them in how to um, how to make this first prototype and what would be the best way to assemble it and how we can change the, the product a little bit so that's more easy to do it or how we can use certain technologies. And at the end, we have a system which, uh, and that's what we call the Shared Smart, uh, Smart Victory, which is able to scale up this production and, and, and making, making their products uh, bringing it uh, to to their customers, so in fact, in fact, we have a factory as a service. Wow, streetlight scooters, smart water. It, it really demonstrates a flexible approach, um, but but also the cooperation required to drive such a model. It, it kind of demonstrates scalability, mass customization, and to me is a, a primary example of what can be achieved around Industry 4.0, and all started three years ago in 2017. If you're enjoying the Management Perspectives podcast and want to learn more, sign up for our popular webinar series and get the latest from Rockwell Automation and our industry expert guests. So, prior to the influence of the pandemic, where were we in EMEA with regards to digitization? Many organizations in many countries that embraced digitization. Some had started on the journey, some hadn't. Others were still coming to terms with what it meant to them and whether they were ready for such a change. I thought it would be interesting to find out more about what's happening in different parts of the world. Uh, and with that in mind, take a closer look at the countries who are finding their way forward within this digital journey. Uh, and we chose to throw the spotlight on Russia. Um, I spoke with Gennady Bailov, who's the country director for Russia and CIS at Rockwell Automation, and Dr. Daniel Thornley. Daniel's the president of DT Global Business Consulting, and, and I asked them both, tell us more about the country's um, state of digitization. Uh, I'd echo what uh, Gennady said, and, and really it's about a mixed picture for Russia. There are certainly big organizations, parts of the Russian government are very digital and proficient, not least of which the Russian Federal Tax Service. Um, Gennady mentioned Sparebank, the biggest massive monopoly bank in Russia. It's very modern, very digitized. Uh, I think non-Russians would be surprised to know that when you go into the branches of Sparebank, the bigger ones, there are these sort of um, floating robots that come up to you and blink their eyes at you kind of thing, which is all very nice. But then you have to go to a human being to make a bank transfer or open your account or whatever. But, you know, there are 10, 15, 20, 50 of, of the big companies that are uh, very digitalized and very capable. Just a, a cultural flip, though, 
You know, if you go out of Moscow, some small regional areas are mid-sized Russian companies. And uh, I kid you not, the uh, accountants, the Bugalteria, as we say in Russian, they are often doing their accounts. They'll use the, the laptop as well, but they're more comfortable using the abacus. Which <laughs> Um, a year ago, 18 months ago, I was in a mid-sized company in Moscow, and the accountants were using Shruti, Abacus. And by the way, they're very quick. That's why they use them. And they're very, you know, they, they feel at home with them. Uh, as I say, they've got laptops and computers on their desk, but I think that's an interesting um, combination of the past and the present. The general downside, though, for uh, digital and innovation is small, medium-sized enterprises. And we've looked at this before. And, um, you know, the blunt numbers are that SMEs in Russia account for 23 to 27% of GDP and employment, 23-27. And in Western Europe and North America, they account for 55 to 60. So the discrepancy is manifest and very big. Um, as Gennady was implying, there's not enough stimulus from the bottom up. SMEs don't work on the diktat of the Kremlin or some innovation committee. They need stimulus from the bottom up, and that's going to come from institutional support, tax support, and a transparent and clean operating business system. So, um, you know, those, and also, by the way, in the COVID crisis, SMEs globally and in Russia have been hit, and the number, absolute relative number of SMEs has declined in 2020. But they often prove resilient uh, and will come back. Um, a closing point on this topic would be in Russia and elsewhere, you know, the adoption of very advanced technologies, the Internet of Things, artificial intelligence, advanced robotics, 3D printing is low, um, taken on board by 10% or less uh, of companies. Uh, some companies are introducing robotics. I don't want to uh, disparage it uh, entirely. And then the other area is that we see that only 37% of companies fully integrate cloud into their core business operations, 37%. However, COVID uh, it may well prove a catalyst here. And this is my closing general point now. COVID globally and in Russia is acting as the big catalyst for change. And uh, I've been talking with many providers, service companies as well, and they're saying more companies now want to move to cloud. And the big question that providers have to answer is, if I put my stuff on cloud, will you keep it secure? And if you can uh, reassure them on that point and virtually prove it, then uh, they will turn to cloud more. And I think we're going to see more cloud adoption. So insight into what's happening within Russia, from floating robots to using an abacus and, and everything in between, uh, quite a broad spectrum, I'm, I'm sure you'll agree. And, and Danny's point about COVID-19 being a catalyst for change, both in Russia and globally, really rings true. Um, we've seen that borne out as the pandemic's worn on. As most of the world went into lockdown, it became apparent that some industries were impacted more than others, where some seen demand drop, others seen increase, depending on what they did. But what was really nice to see was that many industries repurposed what they were already doing to support the pandemic. We saw breweries making hand sanitizer. We saw automotive plants making PPE and ventilators to support the COVID-19 cause. In July, I spoke with Paul Hames, VP pre-sales at PTC, who explained how UK manufacturing had risen to the challenge. 
how they brought together a number of companies within the UK to help provide much needed equipment for the health service, both locally and across EMEA. We discussed how businesses were navigating this change and, and looking at the challenges of lockdown, but also looking ahead how it might change them for the future to embrace this new normal. I think it's a good question, Mike. I think companies, manufacturers today, um, uh, you know, I, I think in, in the main part, they have gone through that sort of short term spike of disruption um, around potentially sort of rejigging all of their shift patterns, um, you know, managing the factory environment, the working environment for their employees. And they've got to a point where hopefully they're at a, you know, whether you'd say it's steady state, um, but they're at a point where they can operate and they can function given the, you know, demands of the the different market that they're looking at today compared to pre-COVID. Um, but they've got that, that, underway. Now, I think as, as companies start to transition to looking at that mid to long term uh, set of capabilities that allow them to be more resilient in the future, um, I think we've seen, and certainly again within the Ventilator Consortium, we saw this as well, that there is that requirement for agility and the ability to sort of withstand those short shocks that you get within the supply chain. And for example, we see that that digital backbone that a company has which captures all of the information that's required for their particular product, whatever it is they design, whatever it is they then go on to manufacture, that digital definition, having that backbone in place is fundamental to the resilience of your company, but also the adoption of these new industry four technologies, that if you don't have that backbone in place, that ability to say, right, from this supplier, who no longer is available to me, I can take this package of work and this is my go out to my new supplier and I have everything ready. Fundamental capabilities like that are not always in place or certainly not in place at the level of detail that's required for the degree of perhaps resilience that's necessary. And that digital sort of thread, that digital sort of package of information, then I think will sustain the ability to adopt these newer technologies, things like augmented reality, the connected factory, as you know, ourselves and Rockwell work very closely together on, that sort of capability is underpinned by that digital backbone. And I think it will also, looking a long way perhaps out into the future, but we see a lot of companies now looking at sustainability of their products, looking at the circular economy as to what they're embedding in, uh, in, in terms of sustainability into their design and how pr products are managed right the way through the life cycle, all of that, again, is underpinned by that, uh, that sort of digital backbone, digital thread message. Again, we return to the idea of the digital backbone. And as we discussed with Rob earlier on, when talking about his shared smart factory, this backbone is absolutely essential to coping with disruption and providing the agility required. It's the heart of the flexibility that allows companies to scale up, scale down, or even change their production entirely. And that's at the core of smart manufacturing, that agility, resilience and flexibility. I'm Mike Lochran and you're listening to the Management Perspectives podcast. If you're enjoying the Management Perspectives podcasts and want to learn more, join us on LinkedIn and take the next steps on your digital transformation journey.
So with the pandemic clearly highlighting the benefits of digitization and the ability to weather a storm, people are now asking about how they go on their own digital transformation. What do they need to do to ensure their digital journey is a success? As companies start on this journey, it's vital to see how they can find that return on investment. With this in mind, I, I spoke to Oliver Reich. Oliver is the Vice Chairman of the Mises Special Interest Group, and he offered up these insights on where to start for a tactical approach to Industry 4.0. So on one side, you for sure, you need to have uh, the people from the, um, let's say, if we're talking about MRM projects, we, we need the people from the shop floor buying in, because at the end of the day, if they're lost with new business processes, new technologies, uh, you will not arrive in producing any material anymore. But on the other side, also, and, and this is also a requirement, you need a sponsor from the sea level. So you need to integrate sea level uh, from the beginning. They play an important role in communicating, in defining the target, uh, seeing the value, motivating the stuff to make it to make the the project or the initiatives or the program uh, a long-lasting part of, um, of of the company's operations. So to play that role, executives need data. Think about how they are receiving it, what format it, it is in, and with what regularity it's communicated. So when we, we did talk before about analytics, so analytics which enable C-Level to understand where they are in their company, this is key. And this is also, when, when, you, when you need the C-Levels to, to build up the, uh, the cathedral, what we talked about before, they need to have an output as well from the new system. And for them, the new system is for sure that the whole company and the whole operations get more transparent. So keeping them informed will help them to do their job better and uh, so the digital change initiatives are more than three times more likely to be successful where the senior management can communicate a clear change story. What we say, if you're planning a pilot program, do the thinking in advance. So if you don't know what a successful implementation looks like and how it fits within a, an evaluation framework, you'll never be able to demonstrate its value. So, so you have to think about it before and uh, uh, you have to bring it um, towards um, that it's fitting towards the, uh, the management's view, the vision, and it's integrated in that. And uh, you, by that, you're getting the C-levels from our experience buying in and supporting the initiatives. A great chat with Oliver and, and one of the things I, I that sticks out in my mind is the phrase building a cathedral. It suggests the size of value you can create and the longevity it can offer, but it's clear you have to start somewhere. Oliver also started there by telling us that if we want to make success of our digital journey, we need to have buy-in from all levels, from the people on the ground right the way through to the sea level. And without that buy-in, it's going to be more difficult to get traction. A core part of the successful digitization journey is the people. And it's important that we engage all stakeholders within this journey. And with this in mind, I spoke with Matt Graves, um, who's director of Calypso, and Rachel Wilson, associate director of Arup. 
Between us, we covered the importance of engaging the people at both ends of the organisation, from sea level to the people on the ground in the thick of it. Yeah, so that's quite that, that's that's an interesting one. I always say, you know, you can have the best culture in the world in terms of, you know, the best saying saying this is what our culture is, but if you actually don't walk that organisation uh, and embed that in your people, then um, there's um, culture each strategy for breakfast so you know you have all those best strategy all those best plans talking about sustainability but if you're really your people don't believe it then um, you know that that's going to be that's going to be really tough number one I would say is you know when you're selecting your people and and you and you want people to be flexible you want innovative people in your business you want people that, that are going to challenge then recruit those people that have that DNA in their personal um, sort of in their personal makeup, um, rather than trying to create it when they join you. You know, Archie Norman uh, had this great saying when he was leading ASDA, um, when he, they they were saying, you know, they they wanted to employ pe- pe- people who were happy, smiley people. So let's not try, let's not bring people in who are miserable and then teach them to be happy. Um, and the same can be said for, for flexible people, for innovative people, for people that challenge you know, the way of doing things. Um, that's got to be in their DNA. So make sure that you engage those people in your business. And once they're in your business, give them the opportunity to be able to um, to, to challenge leadership, to challenge um, every technique you can. Um, get some scrum masters in to uh, to really understand uh, those supply chain processes and cutting things out where uh, where there's waste and giving them an environment in which to thrive rather than an environment in which they feel completely, um, you know, where they're not able to express themselves because then they would just fail. Throughout the series, we've had some great phrases and, and another one that stands out from Rachel was culture eats strategy for breakfast. Um, it, it's so true. You can have the best laid plans, only to have them fall to pieces if no one has the will to make it happen. And how do you ensure that they have the will to make it happen? If you're recruiting, another great phrase, then recruit the people with that in the DNA. As Rachel said, if you want people to be happy, employ smiley people. Makes sense to me. Building a successful digital transformation strategy is not just a matter of getting the technology right. All the shiny new innovations in the world aren't going to help if the people don't want to use them. I think we'll all agree it's been an exceptional year in every sense, particularly for manufacturing. But but despite all these hardships, for many, it's been a year that's made them stronger. It's also clarified purpose and exposed the weaknesses of many companies. But without this kind of exposure, I, I don't think they would have had the chance to step back and take action to rebuild, not just to survive, but to gain a competitive advantage in the future. Together with our partners, we're building a better and brighter future. I'd like to take this opportunity to, to thank you for joining us on this unexpected but insightful journey throughout the year. And please join me again in 2021 when I will be speaking with even more experts from the world of automation, discussing insights, trends and strategies on every aspect of manufacturing today and for the future. Until then, I wish you all the best for this holiday season and I look forward to seeing you again in the new year. been listening to the management perspectives podcast please follow me mike lochran on linkedin and twitter where i publish all of my podcasts and blogs if you've enjoyed the podcast please rate and review us on apple podcasts as this really helps the show